0: What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey.
1: Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're here with Amanda Stern, author of Little Panic, to talk about breaking patterns and getting unstuck. During the pandemic, lockdown has created a sense of moving neither forward nor back, while time has a way of zooming ahead. We're lost without the feedback loops we normally experience when we're together, and don't fully understand what the weird chemistry that being with other humans gives us. But we do know that sharing insights can help us cope with the loneliness, losses, and the strangeness of a pandemic that has demoralized even the strongest, most successful among us. This is not to mention the silver lining of normalizing mental health issues that has resulted during COVID. So it begs the question, how did Amanda Stern go from being a young woman who is often crippled with anxiety, yet always exuding brilliance in performance and writing, to becoming an accomplished woman who has tackled and mastered many creative and leadership roles and learned to take personal risks along the way? Welcome, Amanda. Great to have you with us.
2: Oh, thank you so much. It's very nice to be here. And it was a very generous introduction.
1: Thank you. Oh, well, well deserved. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give listeners a, a short bio of you. Amanda Stern is the author of The Long Haul and 11 books for children written under pseudonyms. In 2003, she founded the legendary Happy Ending Music and Reading Series, which required creative artists to take risks on stage. The multidisciplinary series became, series became the gold standard for literary events. It was produced at Joe's Pub and later at Symphony Space in New York City until two thousand eighteen. Her most recent book is *Little Panic*, a memoir about growing up with an undiagnosed panic disorder in Aton Pad's era Greenwich Village, that is out now from Grand Central Publishing. Amanda is a mental health advocate, speaker, and advisory board member for Bring Change to Mind, an organization founded by Glenn and Jesse Close and Kaylin Pick to end the stigma and discrimination surrounding mental illness. Amanda has also acted in several indie films, notably with Hal Hartley, the latest being Meanwhile starring DJ Mandel, and a comedy series produced by Lauren Michaels of of Saturday Night Live. As a writer, Amanda's required to live in Brooklyn, which she does, with her daughter Busy, who also happens to be a dog. That's a lot of accomplishment, Amanda. I I hand it to you. With these many dimensions that we've described, I wondered, in your own words, how you would describe yourself now.
2: Hmm. Well, I guess I would um describe myself i mean if we're speaking uh, professionally, I would describe myself as a writer, um, a mental health advocate, and um, in the before times a live event producer um, but now I guess i'm I, I just think about live events um so pretty much the same i mean i'm you know I have these disparate parts that all sort of work together somehow, and um, I just seem to. You know, vacillate from one to the other, and then thread them all together. Eventually, mm-hmm.
1: so not so well, different, yeah. It, it sounds it sounds very cool and very interdisciplinary. What kind of live events would you you know imagine per- producing these days?
2: Well, I can't give away my secrets, but oh no, um, <laughs> but I do. I, I you know. Obviously, things have to move outdoors, and so I've just been thinking about the way uh, that we could use buildings, the way that we could use space, public spaces, and even private spaces to some extent, making them a little more public or storefronts or, you know, like just new ways of of using things that we don't think of as spaces or, you know, um, places for viewing. So, yeah, I'm just, you know, running things around in my head and
1: knows. Well, that sounds very cool and very community-based. I think, um, you know, street life and everyday life takes on new meaning these days and places that we maybe took for granted. Um, I would say, too, that your job has been to, to break up patterns, um, expectations from society. Um, by reading Little Panic, I, I know that you're... De- Your definition of anxiety is an inability to tolerate the unknown, which means sufferers of anxiety are frightened by uncertainty. Since every day is uncertain, even routine aspects of life feel dangerous to sufferers. We are not negative. We are worried. I I wondered um, how you felt about anxiety being culturally overlooked, that somehow this worry This worry is normalized. People often don't see anxiety.
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, people often don't see um, a lot of invisible illnesses. Um, But I think, um, well, tell me exactly the, the, what is it? Ask me that question again one more time. Well, I'm thinking about, you know, when you worry,
1: when we worry and we say, um, well, maybe this will happen, or if I don't do this, maybe this mm-hmm. will happen. And then if we're not thinking that way, if we're not in that continuous loop of worrying about, oh, well, what if I don't pack this and I need it for if the rain, you know, is cold or, you know, if you don't do that, you're, you're considered somehow like not thoughtful or you're stupid or you're, you're sort of lazy. I mean, there's a way in which endless worry becomes kind of rewarded in our society, and then as a result we really don't we don't know when we cross the line ourselves and it's hard to really discern when somebody's kind of crying out for help that they're having actual anxiety it disguises itself in a way
2: it does but i think that there are a lot of tells and i think that um, you know just sort of chronic worrying happens in your head and a profound anxiety happens inside your body and the person who suffers from anxiety knows the difference and once you get good at discerning the difference between worry and anxiety um, because you know worry is something that that happens to every single person. Anxiety maybe not um, but once you get good at identifying the differences, um, you can see it in someone. You could hear it in their voice. You can hear, you know, their, the strain in their, in their voice, the the sort of tightness in their throat, the shallowness of their breathing. You can see it. Um, Mm -hmm. you just have to be someone who is mindful or open enough to sort of absorb other people's tensions. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't know necessarily if I agree, though, that we normalized worry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that worry is completely misapprehended and that people, a lot of people are more conditioned to view it as negativity rather than as, um, you know, rewarding it for some sort of thoughtfulness or over-preparation. Um, mm-hmm. so I, that just has not been my experience that worry has been normalized. But I'm sure right. interested that it, that, that's, that, that you see it that way. Um, well,
1: I mean, there's a couple of things. One, one is, you know, you had this, um, this boyfriend, uh, Javier, who mm-hmm. th- thought that you're, you know, in the book, you're, you know, now you're, you're, you're relatively, you're, I think you're in your, 20s by then, right?
2: No, I was in my I was in my late 30s, yeah, early 40s. late, Late 30s, okay.
1: And he felt that your worries were, he described it as not going towards the light which I, I wanted to <laughs> stick stick my finger down my throat then um, because I mean that's that's just also a way of saying I don't want to deal with I, I don't want to deal with your worries. I, I don't want to deal with the things that you're you know anxious about. I don't want to be responsible for comforting you or bringing you solace to this. Um, but the thing right. that, you know I, I think you know so that that was nauseating and and i and i think there's maybe two sides of the same sword because then there's also the placating that goes on with worry where people say mm. well don't worry dear you know it's going to be all right everything is going to be all right and then mm. you kind you're kind of like but that's not an answer right so you're kind of judged for having worry you're kind of judged for not mm-hmm. having like a kind of faith in life, whatever that is, or wherever it's supposed to originate, um, and and how were the the labels? I mean, once you understood the difference between anxiety and worry, and the other thing is that you know sometimes I think we tell ourselves that worrying is normal because we're worriers ourselves. So we're saying it's Mm -hmm. okay because it's part of my shtick, right? Um, You know, but I I think that somehow when you talk about this visceral physical reaction and the anxiety is happening deep inside your body, you know, I wondered if you used that self-awareness when you overcame really incredible, you, you took incredible risks, even at a very early age, producing your own, Uh, dramas in high school, even, to stand up in front Mm -hmm. of people. You got in touch with yourself somehow. How did that work?
2: Well, I think that, so a few things. You just touched on a lot of really important things. And one thing I want to say is that when people say, you have nothing to worry about, you're going to be fine, they're, they're missing a very crucial step. And they're missing the step of what is happening right now in the moment. And a, a person with anxiety is sort of trapped in a present fear of the future. And so people who are attending to worriers often just focus on the future. But the worrier, the anxiety, the anxiety sufferer needs help with the present moment and the the terrible sensations that are happening in their body. So just, this is just sort of to say that when people are dealing with um, others who have anxiety, it's not helpful to say it's going to be fine. You're going to be fine because the person who's suffering is actually not fine. And you're people, you know, by saying that you're dismissing and, and um, sort of disregarding a very fundamental truth, which is that they, it doesn't feel fine at all for me. Um what, what I understood very early on, not with my brain, but um, somehow with my body, I understood um, that the only, I, I understood that I could not, <laughs> it was unbearable to live with the kind of anxiety that I had. It was unbearable because I wasn't just, I didn't just have anxiety. I had panic attacks and mm. I had panic attacks constantly, and sometimes they would be very low-grade panic attacks, but it would be panicking nonetheless. And I held myself in panic attacks by avoiding situations that I thought would give me panic attacks. So that is what the that is what a sufferer does, and it's a, a, a protective mechanism. It's a strategy that that doesn't work because the more you avoid something, the scarier it becomes. And what I understood somehow was that, you know, I, I wanted a big life. I wanted to do certain things that scared the hell out of me and that only a person without panic attacks could could accomplish. But I wanted to accomplish those things, and I knew the only way to conquer or get through my anxiety was to face the very things that terrified me and that is what I did I just sort of forced myself to walk toward the thing that made me panic and you know it was horrifying but I you know I'm not talking about dangerous things I'm talking about very simple things like producing plays in high school or you know standing in front of them. Um, uh standing on stage in front of an audience, things like that, that would, you know, give me panic attacks or like, you know, make me uh, feel nauseated and, and throw up for days in advance. So, you know, I think that that's a really, it's a, it's a type of exposure therapy that I didn't know existed, um, but mm-hmm. that's essentially what it is. And it's one of the most um, profound and effective ways to, to handle anxiety
1: Mm-hmm. Your your fears became your fierceness. Almost you 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 confronted them mm. in a way that uh, people around you were not confronting them. I mean they 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 were doing their best and trying you know to help. But as you say, can't acknowledge your present reality. So there's a lot of euphemism going on, right? And a lot of kind of uh, compensating, right? Like oh well, we'll get you a doctor. We'll get you a pill. We'll get you a, right. this not not yep. denouncing medication at all, but um, your way of direct observation of your feelings and then confronting them, um, it's going to strike a lot of people as being very brave. It, it sounds like for you, it was survival. You, you yes. did it, right? I mean.
2: Yeah. I, I was, you know, yes, it does sound very brave, even when I hear it now. But, and, and I don't disagree, but it doesn't feel brave when I think about what I've been through and what I have to do. It doesn't feel brave. It, you're right. It feels like it's life or death. It's survival. That's really what it feels like. And when you're sort of forced into, like I was forced into situations all the time that were just too overwhelming for me, but I had no choice if, you know, as a teenager, you want to belong, you want to fit in. You, so a lot of the time I would just hide as best I could this fear that I had and do the thing that terrified me without anyone really realizing that's what was happening. Um, and, um, yeah, it just, it, it really, um, I, I really like the way that you, you, you put that, but yeah, it felt like a survival. Um, mechanism. The other thing is that uh, you know a lot of people who um, have panic attacks, and I'm one of these people, uh, has something called dissociation. So they dissociate, they separate from themselves. It feels like, and they, you know, uh, feels like you're you're sort of leaving your body and you're watching yourself. You float up to the ceiling and you sort of watch yourself down below, and it's a it's a Way uh, it's a it's a trauma response and it's a way to protect yourself and, mm-hmm. and that would happen to me constantly. It still happens to me, and that in some way makes it easier to face your fear because you're mm-hmm. not all the way there. You know, you you're can, separated.
1: You can identify it, or you can see mm-hmm. it for what it is. Okay, um, and I wondered if at times it enables you to even laugh at your fear or objectify it in a way. Uh, I don't know does that is that part of it where you can say right now I'm going to look at this fear and I'm just going to say you don't own me or you know talk it down somehow
2: I mean, Yeah that- I mean no I'm not no. I'm not that expert but I I think that what I what I do and what I've done is I I always I, you know I would always say to myself everything is temporary everything is temporary everything is temporary, everything is temporary. you will get through this there's always later. Later is always going to happen. Uh This is not going to feel like this forever. You are always going to have a later. And so I would sort of hang on to that Mm -hmm. as my my sort of soothing medicinal mantra to get Mm -hmm. me through things.
1: Yeah, your go-to. I think that's Beautiful, because I mean, I think time pressure—you know, there's never enough of it. I've missed the boat. Um, my ship's mm-hmm. come in. I'm not at the dock. You know, all the pressures yeah. that we exert on ourselves are are about never enough. You know, that I'm I'm and and that pressure is one that's maybe self inflicted, but there are scores of others that you know. You talk about the the pressure to fit in as a kid. We're going to take a break now, but when we come back, we're also going to look at the pressure of education, standardized tests, the definition of intellectualism, and how these things can make a kid feel completely other and completely different. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In with Amanda Stern.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at Deweycom That's Diane at deweycom Now, back to Dropping In.
1: Welcome back everyone, we're here with Amanda Stern, author of the memoir, Little Panic, which at times isn't little at all, and there are lots of stress-inducing, anxiety-producing pressures that we just touched on, time being one of them, the thought that you don't have all the time in the world, that there won't be a tomorrow. And Amanda, what are some of the other, I mean, you really, I think, describe it in such a vivid way in your book, but there there were so many other standards and maybe continue to be standards of time, what you should be like when you're 16, what you should be like when you're 20, what mm-hmm. you should be like when you're 40. Um, mm-hmm. These measuring up and conforming to other people's standards, it's exhausting, right? And and what is the influence of that, and how do you get around it?
2: Well, I think it's, it's really easy to get um, trapped in the standardization of American life. Um, you know, our entire society is set up around these rites of passage and these expectations. And um, I think for some people, it's very common, you know, to have... Uh, sort of set parameters for what is expected of you and um but for a lot of other people it's it's not it doesn't work at all and um you know and it's it's just a different it's just a different way of being in the world and and experiencing life and I think that for people like me who never felt normal who never felt um like they were the way that the way that we sort of deal with um, humans is as though we weren't we're not human at all, mm-hmm. and the things that make us the most human are completely misunderstood and sort of thrown to the wayside. The mm-hmm. very basic example: education. You know, there is no literature that will tell you that the best thing. For children is to have them sit in a chair for eight hours a day. (laughs) There's no study that will tell you that that is the best thing, and there is no, you know, uh, there's no reason that (laughs) that that our education system should be based around um, sort of fundamental uh, misapprehensions of what it means to be a human being, and that's just how things are. They're sort of based on our inhumanity and not on our humanity. And it's very, it's it's very odd to me and it's always been very odd, but I think that, you know, a person who is struggling with these, um, timeframes and this, these rites of passage, it's really, really (laughs) problematic and hard to sit down with yourself and say, okay, the, the world has a mission statement that it wrote on my behalf and it doesn't match at all with my own mission statement that I have on my behalf. So I advise people to really sit down and, and actually write, like pretend they're a business and write their mission statement. What do they value? What do they stand for? What's important to them? And that is your blueprint and not the blueprint that other people who don't even know you wrote on your behalf. And it's a hard thing to do, but if you feel like you're here for other reasons other than getting, you know, um, a PhD and getting married and buying a house and having two cars and having children, if your life is not about that, then you would need to get clear about what those other things are and live to that ideal.
1: Mm hmm to your mission, to find out your, your calling, your purpose, your, you know, what gives you passion and juice. I think it's interesting, the similarity between standardized tests and the tests of, you know, each decade in passage. And as you say, the standardization Mm -hmm. of American life, it's, it's very similar somehow, you have to pass this test in order to go on to that. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you don't detach from that, um, and you don't, look inside of yourself. I mean, you say in the book, the story of ourselves that other people tell are not ourselves. Um, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. such a fundamental, profound uh, observation. It sounds so simple, but, you know, the rewards are there, right? I mean, if you dig down and do this hard work of tuning in, um, it's, it's a different it's a way different kind of reward right because the rest of the time you're just Mm -hmm. trying to measure up and you're creating false selves um which you did that for a while you tried on all those people it seems to me um Mm -hmm. and how did how did that go
2: well not well because Mm -hmm. you know when you adopt different personas to um to be able to sort of uh, acclimate and and sort of survive you when you have a very strong sense of self uh, but it's not in alignment with the world's idea of who you should be then you take on other selves you try on different personas in order to cover up this first self that is too much or not right or that you think is defective and you adopt all these other selves and you, what you end up doing is living a life that is not in congruence with the person that you truly are. And so you end up spending majority of your life having to take apart these other personas, sort of strip them away and be like, oh, that's not who I really am or this is not working for me and, you know, sort of strip all the, the foundations away until you actually uh, get the root of who you are and then you could start living from that place but it it takes forever if you spend most of your life covering that original self and you know playing other parts and trying to perform and Mm -hmm. fit in and be right well
1: you were you know you were were all about trying to um, achieve love you know get love and get um, you know approval from people so and also when you're Really, you know what you're defined as. You were there was a lot of deficits people saw in you because you you weren't you know keeping up at school. You weren't interested in sitting in the chair without getting restless. You weren't um, interested in focusing. And I, I think even you know it's kind of a phenomenal coincidence. You open the book talking about. Time, the construct mm-hmm. of time, and you know, not understanding as a little girl, you know, with your dear friend Melissa, um, the, the concept of AM and PM. I mean, these are things that really don't make sense when you <laughs> t- when you scratch right. the surface, right? I mean, okay, there's two yeah. seven there's two seven o'clocks, okay. You know, I just you had the curiosity of someone, and this curiosity of someone who wasn't going to get rewarded for it. You weren't necessarily going to get love for that. You were going to, like, you get that side eye for that. And then you started to, you know, disguise yourself. But then there was a way I had to ask myself when you were a teen – you you actually put on um a, a, you, some armor you 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 got the discarded clothes of your brother who was kind of a mm-hmm. like sort of a punky kid right and
2: mm-hmm. Did,
1: mm-hmm. and and did that disguise actually help you in a way project a strength that you didn't really
2: feel absolutely it was it was soothing beyond measure um I felt very much like if I wore my brother's clothes, I would have my brother's essence of coolness and aloofness. And, um, you know, I could keep people at a distance and they wouldn't come too close. They couldn't see what was underneath. I was so afraid that people could see right through me and into my, like, large tank filled with fear. And, you know, it just it's so strong, those feelings of panic and anxiety. They're so strong. You really, it's, you, you find it miraculous that people don't see it. And so I think that putting on his clothes helped me feel like I had another layer between me, between my fear and the world. And, um, and it, yeah, it was a type of armor and a type of, like, I was a character. I, I had, I got to create a character and live in the world as this character who was an extension of me. You know, it was the armored, me, um, mm-hmm. but it was the only way that I could actually truly manage my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah.
1: what if people do see it? I mean, now you are sharing it in a way that I think is so helpful for those of us out here who, who may feel isolated. Um, how How is coming coming clean with it? Um, how has that helped empower you in a maybe more authentic way? I don't want to put words in mm-hmm. your mouth, but how is that for you?
2: It's, um, I, I can't even overstate it enough. It's life-changing. It's completely life-altering. You know, when you feel panic, you, you don't get to really express it because you don't really know how or no one's listening or no one understands it. But when you do express it, when you finally can express it, and people hear you or see you, you don't feel that panic anymore. It's sort of, um, it's a way to face your, pa- by talking about your panic, by talking about what happens to you, you are facing what happens to you. And it, it sort of, um, it gives you more power and the panic less power and mm-hmm. it it sort of strengthens your confidence and your sense of self and your resolve to conquer this so mm-hmm. for me it's it was terrifying to do this, and um, but sometimes when things terrify you, you know you know that you're onto something exactly. and you know, when when you're doing something and you know that it's right and it terrifies you, then you're doing something right.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I just needed to keep going towards that rightness. And I can't tell you how how I, you know, I advocate so hard on behalf of people being open and honest. And I know how scary it is. I know how terrifying it is. And um but I also know how liberating it is. And you just have to find that one safe person. And if that one safe person is a stranger, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's if it's me, it's okay. Like, if you don't know me and you can't have no one to tell or no one to talk to, email me. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'm here, you know. So there are people who exist who can be there for you, even if you don't know them. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's
1: important. Well, sometimes it cuts through even being familiar. You don't you don't need to be familiar. You just need to sense that you you know are you're getting it. And you know, I, I wonder yep. also about that dynamic of you so powerfully, you know, taking back this um energy that was robbed was seeping out of you. And I, I think, you know, the dynamic of other people. Hearing it and responding to it also gives mm-hmm. it just that mu- that much more of right a push forward. Even even now as you're speaking, um, and you you've really articulated this uh, I think so well. And also, you talk in the book about greeting the self you find rather than the one you were taught to expect. So maybe mm-hmm. it's maybe it's finding the stranger in yourself, finding the stranger in us. Mm-hmm. Mm, I love that,
2: right? I, I love mean, that. Except, yeah. Except, for except that 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 person's not a stranger, right? You know, right. It, it's just estranged, <laughs> right? But it's, it's but, but it's who you are. It's truly who you are. You're just estranged from your original self, right?
1: And there's a certain point where you say, "I I just think I'd like to get to know that girl," um, mm-hmm. which is. I think all that girl really ever wanted, you know, I mean, is this acknowledge- acknowledgement.
2: Yeah. I mean, if um, you spend your life trying to get other people to see you and hear you and they don't and they can't, you you come to a point very late in life often where you're like, wait a minute, no one, if no one, there's no one who can do this. And then you realize you are someone, you're mm-hmm. someone, you yeah. can do it. We yeah. always overlook ourselves right. and- it's that self that we most often need them, you know we need the most.
1: Yeah, exactly. You can you can, in fact, save yourself. Um, we We have a couple minutes till we need to take a break, but I wondered about um, a certain kind of trope, maybe t- too overworked, but but the link between creativity and feeling this otherness, the link between mm-hmm. creativity and being an observer, Um, is it because the creative space gives you permission to be who you are? Or what do you think these links are about? We don't have to answer it all right now, but are they real? Is this, you know, is this trope based on something um, that's substantiated? Is the creative person an outsider um, and then becomes an insider for being
2: creative? Mm, That's interesting. I mean, I think that I think that the you know the a person who feels like an outsider has nowhere to put that sense of outsiderness, and so if they can find a place to put it and make something from it and express themselves that way, then in doing so, they I think they feel it's just the expression of it that you really you know that you really need, um, but. You know, I don't know. I honestly don't know enough about um, sort of the science of creativity or the psychology of um, creativity, I, and and I'll tell you why. It's because I, I worry that if I put my finger on something that is um, very dear to me but is ephemeral, you know, like um, – you know, why is it that I write? If someone wants a real answer to that, I don't really want to know. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give the, I don't want to know. Because if I know, I feel like it'll, it'll break the spell. The mystery mm-hmm. will be over and I'll no longer want to be creative. I'll no longer want to write because I'll know exactly why I do it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure that I can entirely answer that question, but I, I, I do think that, um, I think that there is a link, and, um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people um, with pain have no place else to go, mm-hmm. you know, but off to the side, and mm-hmm. that's where they make their, you know, their pain uh, look like something else
1: look like something else. Well you 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 gave a platform for many others and many distinguished people to give expression to themselves when you created the happy ending. I mean that that mm-hmm. seems to it seems to me that you're involved with the process and kind of supporting it and don't need to dissect it, but embrace it, you know, rather holistically, yeah. rather than let's not take it apart. Let's just, <laughs> let's embrace it. Let's give it a place to be. Um, and, right. and that's yeah, that that's, that's really cool. Uh, we're going to take a break now. Um, and it turns out that Amanda Stern is writing a novel. Is that correct, Amanda? Yeah.
2: Well I, I yes, and no, I was writing a novel I've since pivoted, and we can talk about that when we come
1: back uh, okay, good. we've got some we'll have some unanswered questions on the process, the writing process, <laughs> and um the whole evolutionary process and uh, what 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 kind of immersion happens to um Create the such such immediacy as occurred in your in your already published memoir, Little Panic. Um, it's something I recommend people get their hands on. We'll be right back with Amanda Stern. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa,
0: play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz, while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit BooksForward.com or send us an email at info at BooksForward.com. A JKS communications company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at com. That's diane at dot dewey.com. Now, back to dropping in. Welcome back, everyone.
1: We're here with Amanda Stern, who is by her own testimony on her website a writer, etc. cetera. Uh, a multifaceted person, Amanda, you've acted, you've performed on stage, you have written memoir, you've written children's books, and at first, a novel. Um, at a certain point, you were given to write a novel again, and what's happened with that project?
2: So I, yes, I have been working on a novel, and um, apparently, once you start writing Memoir and nonfiction, it is incredibly hard to stop. Um, So I um, started cheating a little bit on the novel I was working on um, with another, I don't know, I guess it's a book of nonfiction. Um, It's memoir-ish. And so, yeah, I've been working on that for the past several months, and it's got more legs than the novel. Had or at least I have more energy for it than I have had for the novel, mm-hmm. um, so the novel's not completely gone. It's just taking a rest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's having a pandemic, um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been working on a, I've been working on a book about um, uh, mourning uh, mourning thing a loss of something you never had.
1: Yes. So, that that so nirvana yeah. that that's a very cool that's very cool because I think that occupies a lot of psychic space in our lives for sure, and nobody yeah. better to tackle it than you because you know it is really it seems I'm I'm really actually very grateful that you're writing nonfiction and um, going back into a, more of a, a memoir tradition just because um, you're gifted at it and. And also because I, I wondered how you would make that shift, and even when you're writing nonfiction, just without giving away too many secrets, do you do you envision the whole? Do you work episodically? How do you work? Is it by scene? It by yeah? How does it work?
2: Yeah, I sort of I I work. It's um, a good question. You know, I just power forward. I don't. I I have a sense of the whole. Um, not really intellectually, but um, I think very much in a rhythmical sense. So structure to me is rhythm, and um, so I I know the whole book rhythmically. I know the patterns of the book. I know the um, like the the thread and the shape. Um, but i don't know what all the disparate parts are necessarily going to be um, and I think you know for me with nonfiction what i what I like so much about it is that i don't feel that pressure to know everything in advance i don't feel the pressure to plot it out. I feel much more open to just explore where with fiction it's it's much harder for me, and I get so lost and so in over my head that I have to really plot it all out. And that, for me, takes away some of the joy mm-hmm. of just writing. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I think I'm just very, I'm very instinctual. I'm mm-hmm. a very intuitive human being and a very intuitive writer. Mm-hmm. And all the other stuff comes after that. And
1: you're, you're gathering then, You're it's more organic. It sounds like it's more organic, and in, in, in that you're more um, then you're just opening yourself to what what might yeah you know, the, the, yeah the concept might um, attract um, yeah as opposed to plotting that, but plotting plotting sounds scary to somebody that has as it much it is uh, yeah scary that's scary right like oh it's like yeah. almost sterile okay um, but now you also. Act, and I wondered if um these you know that's more that's more physical. I feel like it probably involves a lot of intuition as well. Um, do you look forward to doing more acting, and does that you know, bring you something else to the table?
2: well, i don't I don't actually really act so much anymore. I more like perform. Like a lot of what I do is more improv based. So with happy ending. Um, I, you know, I was the host of the whole event and I would write a monologue and um, and I would sort of weave together all the um, different elements of the show as they came together and sort of cohere it into a whole and I would do it improvisationally. Um, so that's sort of more my style is um, just being on stage and, and improvising. Acting to me is... Um, Really, strangely inorganic, and um, and and too inauthentic for me. You mm-hmm. know, I feel like there are people who can act, who can who can come in from the really authentic side, and I don't. That's not me. I'm much more authentic with improvisation, but with acting, I feel like there's much more of a. Uh, a boundary that I, I don't really know how to penetrate or to cross. Um, mm-hmm. And also it's terrifying to me. It's uh, that, you know, acting, I don't think I'm a very good actor. I think I'm, um, I, I think I'm pretty good at improv, but I, I don't think I'm very good at, at acting like mm-hmm. memorizing and then, you know, performing, That's not my strength. And it also gives me so much anxiety and panic And it's not something I want to get good at or need to get good at. So I don't need to face that. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. not a fear I need to face. Exactly. Um, But yeah.
1: Well, it's also scripted, right? I mean, and and it's scripted. So you you have to. But not, it's not that you can't, but like you'd have to so believe in the script or, or the right. words. And, you know, and you know, I, there are also the words that you've written. I mean, there were parts of Little Panic that I thought, oh, I so want this to be a film. Um, mm. I don't know how that w- would feel for you. It, it wouldn't be improvisational, but it would be your words. I mean.
2: Yeah. I mean, I definitely that, wouldn't act in it. You know, if if I am actually working on a a sort of a pilot episode or pilot TV pilot for this for Little Panic, Um, just not for not for anyone, just to see if I can do it. And then if it's good, we'll see. But um, but even that, I don't think I could do. I I would rather show up in a cameo as like, you know, I don't know, uh, the dog walker. But um, yeah, I, you know, I just I don't. Um unless the whole show was improv then I could do it.
1: Mm-hmm. That would be that would be even, really interesting. Yeah. Right? You could just yeah. set
2: out set out
1: the kind of um the intent and then let and then mm-hmm. let the um and let that that would be really interesting and let the dialogue take shape. I mean a lot of people are scared to death of improv like that's like oh no scaffolding. I know. I mean, <laughs> you know you're you're talking about I know about, it's
2: weird. It's, yeah, it's weird. weird that I'm like this. It's yeah, an in, it makes no an, sense.
1: It's an inverse strength. It's like a strength, but it's one that you've tapped into, and that—that's the important part. You know, you—you've connected with it, and then once you have that, you—you kind of can't go back. You know, you can't go back to just words on a page and a thing, You know, um, so right. I, I think that's really interesting in the structure of it. You know, you just feel like maybe that's—that's that's not really so necessary. Um, you—you've had, yeah, um, yeah. you've—you've you've had um a a lot of. Well, you've had a lot of passages in your life where you were trying to work with the script. (laughs) Like it's just not that much fun either. Right. I mean, that's, that's the other part, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's not your, your personal, your personal comfort level. I wondered if you, you feel as though you've you've come to some point of arrival or some sense of peace. Um, I mean, much has been made of the idea of like becoming friends with yourself and even self-love. And, um, I wondered if, you know, if, if your evolution has brought you to this place of peace or if you would describe it or how you would describe it. Um,
2: I, I definitely would not say I'm at peace. Um, I, I think that, that where I am is, I'm. I'm no longer ashamed. I'm no longer humiliated and embarrassed by the truth of who I am and what happens to me. Um, I'm quite open about it. But you know, I. I'm also really and have been like this my entire life. I'm very committed to overcoming all of this and. I'm also very clear that that takes a full life. It's a mm-hmm. full lifetime. I'm not over, you know, when uh, people have asked me like, how did you, how did you conquer this? How did you get over this? How did you, what was your aha moment? There, there's no such thing. There's no aha moment. There, are, and I hate that expression, but there, are, there are billions of aha moments and they all sort of guide you. But this is a, a like conquering something that is sort of a, almost a biological disorder, it takes a lifetime. And I think that I've reached the point where I'm really committed to that devotion of spending my life, you know, facing my fears and getting better and better and better and stronger and stronger and stronger. And And where I'm no longer um, paralyzed by panic that when I start to panic and I feel those sensations in my body, that I I know how to um, you know go go towards those feelings more more and more and more because I'm still I still get panic attacks I still have panic you know it's um, it's not resolved entirely so well, it's a it's a work work of a lifetime
1: it's a work in progress there. The main, I mean, there i mean—there is no over. There's not just uh, no aha. Uh-huh. There's there's no over. Right. There's no and, over. Right. And there's there's through maybe, and and
2: exactly. the
1: great the great part I think well, you're sharing it takes away so much of the shame and stigma that isn't surrounds it surrounds mental health issues. We can't thank you enough for being with us on Dropping In and sharing more with us. Also, refraining from blaming, I think, is a brilliant solution to this. It's something we didn't ex- you know, say explicitly, but yeah. thank you so much, Amanda Stern. I'm just going to leave us with um, your social media handles, Amanda Stern on Facebook, uh, Instagram, a little Stern and uh, as as well as the website amandastern.com you can reach out. Thanks to our engineers Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer Robert Giolino, and most of all to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and remember to talk about your fears as they become your fierceness. Till next week, thank you for dropping in.
0: Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.